everybody. This is Chris. And Kathy. We wanted to take a minute to thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate every listener and are grateful for this platform. Please help us share our vision by subscribing to our show through your favorite streaming app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. Check out our ever-growing list of affiliates and sponsors. Simply go to the show notes for information and links. And be sure to use our promo code PETPOD22, that's P-E-T-P-O-D-2-2, on checkout to receive your discount from our affiliates. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Alon Landa, CEO of MedcoVet, and I'm a proud sponsor of PetAbility. We decided to partner with Chris and Kathy because, like them, we want to empower all pet owners who are trying to do the most for their pets. At MedcoVet, we specialize in advanced home laser therapy for pets. Laser therapy is a safe and effective treatment for common conditions like arthritis and wounds, and it relieves pain for most conditions caused by inflammation. With MedcoVet, pet owners can perform this treatment at home while receiving support from experienced clinicians. If you think your pet would benefit from healing at home, visit MedcoVet.com, and one of our clinical experts will work with you to determine if home laser therapy is the right fit for you and your pet. Tell them PetAbility sent you. Welcome to PetAbility. I'm your host, Kathy Simons. And I'm your host, Chris Cranston. Our podcast provides interviews and information to help your pets live their best lives. Good morning, Kathy. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well this morning, Chris. You know, it seems to me that every single time we record, my neighbor is out mowing the lawn. I I hope you all can't hear that. (laughs) I cannot hear it. No matter what time of day, no matter what it is. That Murphy's Law, you know, know. it it gets you every time, right? I know, I know, I know. So, so Kathy, Kathy. Yeah. Yeah. We have a really hip show today. Oh, oh, we have a hip show. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. I'm jazzed because we're talking to a friend of mine, a colleague of mine that I've known for a long time about femoral head and neck osteotomies, which is a fancy term to indicate a type of hip surgery. So we invited Dr. Keisha Davis with us today because she is an expert on all things surgery. Right, 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 right. It's exciting. You know, my very first pug that I had had avascular necrosis and he had to have an FHO at like seven months old. So I'm really, yeah. So I I have had at least one hand in in FHO surgery with my own personal dog. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to learn more. Yeah, yeah. That, I didn't realize that, that Buddha had an FHO. He did. He did. He lived the rest of his life with one hip. Didn't slow him down at all. Right. So <laughs> this is all the stuff we want to we wanna share with our audience because right. we call it an FHO because as you heard, you know, femoral head and neck osteotomy is kind of a, a tongue twister. So throughout the show, we'll be just referring to it as FHO. But we asked Dr. Keisha Davis to be here because it's a very common surgery. And mm-hmm. we've been trying to get to get somebody to talk to us about this topic for a long time. And particularly, it's the type of surgery that really benefits from rehabilitation. So Kathy, both you and I are, are very familiar 
with the post-operative rehab protocols following an FHO surgery over the years. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll, I'll go so far as to say, you know, needs rehab for the best right. outcome following right. this type of surgery. But many people don't have, have that uh, privilege. So anyway, we're going to tell you more about it. What is an FHO? Why is an FHO performed? Who are the candidates that are, are ideal for this? And what should you expect from it? What is the immediate post-op recovery like? What are the long-term outcomes and, and so forth? But before we get into all of that, let me tell you a little bit more about uh, Dr. Davis. As I mentioned, um, I think met in about 2008 where we were both working in a 24-7 emergency and specialty center. And I, I remember when, when Dr. Davis came on board and shortly thereafter, she actually asked me to participate in a study and nobody had asked me that before. And so, Ooh. yeah, I was getting excited. I was also terrified because... <laughs> I hate research, but she called me down. She said, no, it's not going to be a big deal. We're just going to take some measurements and, and this is the the thing. So I also know that, that Dr. Davis is a, a fan of rehab because she definitely uh, referred a lot of, of pets to me at that time. But getting into some of the nitty gritty, Dr. Davis is a specialist in surgery. And in fact, she is board certified in small animal surgery, which we've said before is a very big deal. So this means that, that she is a licensed veterinarian who has obtained intensive additional surgical training. She started practicing in 1999 after graduating from New York State Veterinary College at Cornell University. And had a number of stints. She worked a bit in California. She had an internship at North Carolina State University Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital, then went on to get a fellowship at the Comparative Orthopedic Research Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, returned to North Carolina State University Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital, and did a residency there, and then in 2007 became board certified by the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, and went on to have an appointment as a lecturer in small animal surgery at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And then that's where we met at Massachusetts Veterinary Referral Hospital and worked together for a few years and is now at VCA South Shore in Quincy, which is south of Boston here. And so she's she's in our hood, Kathy. And yep, have, yep, yep. <laughs> and we have the, the pleasure of, of continuing to work with Dr. Davis, who is proficient in all aspects of both soft tissue and orthopedic surgery, and has a special interest in minimally invasive surgeries. But today, mm. we're going to be talking about those FHOs. Right. So welcome, Dr. Keisha Davis. Welcome, Hi. Dr. Davis. Hi, thank you for having me, Chris and Kathy. This is quite an honor. It's my first podcast. So thank you. <laughs> we we won't make it very daunting. This will be fun. Oh, good, good. Well, I'm not, I'm not scared. I trust you, so. All right, here we go. So, so I, you know, this is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart because I do think that there is a right, right way to surgically manage these dogs. And I think a lot of it has nothing to do with the surgery. And a lot of it has to do with the rehab, like you, you know, were alluding to in the introduction. And so I certainly concur with that. So Dr. Davis, 
Uh, thank you for the, for that prop there about rehab, but let's get into it. Can you describe in surgical terms what a femoral head and neck osteotomy is and further, you know, why is it performed? What are the indications? Yeah, so an FHO, um, it's got a couple different names. There's a femoral head and neck ostectomy and then um, a femoral head and neck excision. Those are the two most common terms that you'll hear used to describe an FHO. And the purpose of that surgery is to remove the head and the neck of the femur so that there's no longer any contact between the femur and the pelvis. And so for most dogs that, well, so the indications for it are if the hip is popped out, let's say the dog was hit by a car and the hip popped out um, and the hip either can't be put back in because it's been too long or there's a fracture in the hip or there's a bunch of arthritis, that would be an indication for the surgery, it's also indicated for dogs with hip dysplasia that either aren't good candidates for a hip replacement or hip replacement just isn't available, you know, in the area where you live. And it's a good, it's called a salvage procedure. And what that means is that you've basically sort of given up on the joint. And so you remove the articulation of the joint, the actual function of the joint and create a false joint that's just supported by muscle. So once the head and neck of the femur are gone, you just have the glutes that are sort of holding the hip together and helping with the motion of that leg. So if people were to sort of visualize this, if they were to think about the hip as a ball and socket joint, what you're essentially doing is removing that, that ball that exactly. goes into the pelvis. So we're going to remove that, that piece. Right. right. And okay. so it just doesn't touch anymore, which... And that's usually the part that hurts is that grinding. So that's gone. And so then you're sort of left with this false joint that the body has to figure out how to get used to. And the recovery can be unpredictable depending on how the body does it. And that's why rehab, you know, is really instrumental because you can actually train the muscles to do what they're supposed to do. So I want to explore this a little bit more um, to help people visualize. So, you know, just in terms of the name, femoral head and neck, and I guess I was saying it wrong. I was saying osteotomy, but it's ostectomy. So so the thigh bone is the femur. So that's the first part of the name. And then the head is that ball that Kathy was describing. And then the neck actually is that little connecting piece from the ball to the thigh bone. And I know in people coming from the people world, oftentimes when, when folks break their hip, you know, with like osteoporosis and things when they're older, it's that neck that that breaks when they say they've, you know, fallen and broken their hip or actually probably broke their hip and, and then fell um, due to the weak bone. But I know it's really important, Dr. Davis, that that in this surgery, that all of that be removed cleanly. If there's any little bit of that neck that's left behind, then that can cause some continuing uh, problems in terms of discomfort and so forth. But basically, you're what I hear you describing is you're removing anything that could be offending and irritating in that joint. So it's just clean. That's exactly right. And a lot of time, if there is a surgical failure, it's because there's some little piece of the neck that's left and it just keeps hitting the pelvis and that's painful. So if you've had a patient that's, you know, done the full rehab and they're still not quite where they should be, it might be due to that. And so the surgery definitely involves technically, you know, it's, it's good to have an experienced person do the surgery um, because you can assure that 
there's been a clean removal of the head and the neck completely. There's a little bump at the very bottom of the neck, sort of where the neck and the thigh bone um, attach called the lesser trochanter. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the past, there was a recommendation to remove that as well to make sure you get the whole thing. But there's been some research sort of looking at that if it makes a difference. And actually, if you leave that little piece of bone, they do better because the iliopsoas tendon attaches there. And that can help with just recovery of a normal gait and normal range of motion with these dogs. So the surgery itself has changed a little bit over the years, but really not not that much. It's a pretty old surgery. It works quite well. And there's a lot of data as far as, you know, how to do it correctly, you know, indications for revising the surgery if things aren't going well. You know, it's it's amazing to me that we can even do this with animals because if I think of a person, I mean, we could never do an FHO on a person, right? We could never remove the femoral head and neck of a person and, and expect them to stand and walk again. So this is really interesting that we can do this and that, that we're going to form, you know, this false joint or pseudo joint that's going to, you know, support the dog in walking. And I'm kind of interested to know, like, is everybody a candidate for that? So let's think about a big dog, uh, a mastiff. So I I see a lot of little dogs with uh, avascular necrosis who have had FHOs. Uh, But what about a large dog? Are they candidates for that? Can they have their femoral head and neck removed and still be functional? Yeah, I kind of want to back up on your comment a little bit um, about the human side of it, because um, that's actually where the surgery came from. Really? Um, and so before there were hip replacements in people, this was the surgery that that they did, you know? Wow, I did not know that. That is so yeah. cool. And, and I'm, I'm a PT for people and I never heard of this. Well, you don't want it. Because the recovery is pretty unpredictable, um, wow. which is also true in dogs, but to the point where you do end up with this really odd rolling walk, you know, when you walk, if it's not, if you don't recover well. And because, you know, we stand up to walk, dogs, you know, have four legs, they can sort of, they are on all four, the gait is different. So it works functionally better in dogs versus in a person, it just doesn't work nearly as well. So you know, the surgery was done for years and years. The recovery was, you know, it wasn't great. You would end up disabled because you really couldn't function well with that hip. So you weren't in pain, but you still couldn't get get around, you know. Um, and then that itself did cause some discomfort as well. So that's why the hip replacements sort of came into fruition. And they were, they were intensively hip replacements trialed through dogs first, which is interesting, before in people. Um, and so there's sort of this cycle between humans and dogs as far as figuring out hip dysplasia, because people get it too, figuring out the best treatment for it. As far as um, good candidates for an FHO, my personal bias is that, you know, I like an FHO for a very young dog, for a lean dog, typically a smaller dog for cats. They seem to work predictably pretty well. Some of the really tiny dogs that have avascular necrosis, like the little Maltese's, you know, Yorkies, sometimes they don't recover very well. Some of it is due to the amount of muscle loss they have just because their leg has been so, you know, so small for so long. It's not trauma. It's sort of this chronic condition. Um, and some of it is also just due to the fact that they're so little. I, even if the leg has perfect range of motion, everything is beautiful. They just 
don't want to use it. It's annoying, you know? So for little dog, little, little dogs, their recovery can be unpredictable, but usually with time they get back to normal with larger dogs. So, you know, any dog over 40 pounds, the bias that I have, because I was trained in a place that did have replacements and sort of depending on where you're trained, it really depends on how you think about this, but larger dogs think don't do as well. There's a little bit of research out there that says that this might not be true, but they're pretty small studies, like 40 dogs, 60 dogs, really nothing big and massive. And the problem is with large dogs, they're just so heavy. You're expecting this false hip to carry all that weight and they don't have a predictable recovery, you know, and if they don't recover well, then you have a hundred, 150 pound dog that you have to help help get around. So it's a big deal, you know? So for those dogs, unless there's some reason they can't have a hip replacement, I do encourage them to get a hip replacement just because the recovery is more predictable. You know, you're talking about a 90, 95% chance of recovery with a hip replacement. Those are the numbers you want to see with a 150 pound dog. We've talked a little bit and mentioned this false joint or pseudo joint. Can we explain to the audience or can you explain to the audience what is what is this false joint? So basically when you, so the head and neck of the femur serve as sort of the bridge between the thigh and the pelvis. And if you remove that, then there's nothing really connecting the back leg to the pelvis as far as bones go. Um, and so you're just really relying on the muscle to sort of take over that motion. And because it's not as stiff as bone, it's just muscle. Um, the movement can be erratic. So you end up with a joint that has way more movement than a traditional hip joint would have. Um, eventually the body will develop a bunch of scar tissue around that and try to regulate that. And that's what's considered the false joint where there's a scar tissue there trying to hold things relatively close together. You do end up with the limb in a little bit of a different position than if the hip were intact. So the leg ends up being a little bit shorter because there's nothing to prevent it from migrating up because that bridge is gone. It's not enough where you would really notice it if you saw the dog walking, but if you took an x-ray, you would see it. And so that's sort of the, the false joint where the body's just laying down a ton of scar tissue to, to, just to keep that leg stable. And so the more muscle you have around that area, the more robust that false joint is going to be versus if we have really thin muscle, there's just nothing to control that motion. Um, and you end up with far less scar tissue. And also with rehab, you can help control how that scar tissue is laid down. So for my patients, um, I like them to go into rehab within that first week of surgery. So their body's not so busy laying down scar tissue erratically. We can sort of train it to lay it down in a way that's going to be beneficial for the pet long-term. And that makes that scar tissue stronger too, right? I, right. I, I always remember, I don't remember very much from PT school, but Wolf's Law always haunts me. And, uh, and that's basically when you apply a stress or a strain across tissue, then the tissue responds in a way to resist that stress and strain, I guess, and, and become stronger in those planes of motion and so forth. Am I explaining that correctly? Exactly. And that's what you want because then you know what you have at the end of recovery versus you just sort of get what you get, you know, depending on how the dog wants to move. I remember also a, an analogy that was used 
was a, like a pile of pickup sticks. And if a trauma, you know, is, is left to its own devices to heal, or in, in this case, you know, the, the surgery is very traumatic because you're going very deep down into the, the body and through many layers of tissue, but that scar will lay down in a just a mishmash form like a pile of pickup sticks. But what rehab and proper movement does is, is similar to like rolling your hand across that pile of pickup sticks. And eventually they all become lined up in a linear way. And so that was always a good visual. I could kind of explain to my pet owners and, and such what we're trying to do with some of the, the rehab protocols. Never heard that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that, makes total, that makes total sense. Yeah, you got it? <laughs> yeah, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Thanks for it. Yeah. Learning today. I love it. <laughs> hey, I want to go back to we've mentioned, you know, you mentioned a bit uh, early on, Kathy, with, with Buddha, your pet, that uh, he had avascular necrosis. And uh, Dr. Davis, you mentioned it too with these really small dogs, which are kind of prone to this, but we've never explained what, what that is. And I don't think probably the average pet parent has any idea. It's a, kind of a technical term. Do you want to explain that, Dr. Davis? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting syndrome. It's, again, something they see in people. Um, and so what it is, so that if you visualize the hip as sort of this ball and socket, if you just think about the ball part of the hip and the neck of the femur, when the hip is developing, when they're really young, there's growth plates all through there. So the head and the neck and the thigh bone, they're not really firmly connected until the dog is 100% done growing. And so during that growing process, there are blood vessels that travel from the, the femur, from the thigh, up the neck and into the head. And that those blood vessels just feed, you know, feed that bone so it can grow and develop into a normal bone. And what we think happens is that these dogs throw blood clots when they're really little to those blood vessels in the neck and that just basically kills the bone from the neck to the head of the femur because they're just all clotted and blood can't get through. And so the, instead of the bone growing and developing, it just starts to die away. And so eventually that gets so weak that the dog is doing something normal, like walking or jumping or, you know, running across the field. And they can actually break the neck because it just gets brittle because it's just dead bone in there. And so when you take an x-ray, you'll see it just looks like it's sort of been moth-eaten or they call it like apple coring of the neck and the head of the femur, where it just looks like it's disintegrating. And that's because the bone itself has lost its blood supply. And so there's nothing you can do to reestablish that. People have done all kinds of, you know, studies and have looked at it. And in, in a person, what they would say is, okay, you know, that's done, you know, we'll give you a hip replacement. And they'll do that sometimes in young kids. And then as they grow, sometimes you have to sort of upsize the hip. In dogs, typically when we see them, they're already almost their adult size. So you can just do this FHO procedure. And most of these dogs are tiny. So there are tiny hip replacements out there, but the vast majority of the dogs with this syndrome don't end up getting hip replacements for a number of reasons. And the FHO is the, the treatment of choice. And it just takes away that grinding from the dead bone that's there in the hip socket. And so those dogs are much more comfortable after surgery. And then that I think is when the real work starts because the surgery lasts half an hour 
And then you have months of recovery where you're just trying to train them to get back on that leg. This happened exactly uh, with Buddha, just like you described it. He was uh, playing with one of his dog friends. Everything was fine. Uh, He tried to jump up on the uh, couch and screamed and, and it fractured just like that. Yeah. And then radiographically, it was it was moth-eaten, I would say, you know, based on its appearance. And he did so well with it. This was my first experience with within a first, you know, you know, the surgeon had said, we, we can do rehab. And he said the same thing. I'd like to start in a week, but I'd like you to keep them, you know, a little bit quiet initially. And um, he felt so much better initially. Dr. Davis, I had to, I cried trying to keep him still. <laughs> I mean, you never tell a pug to do anything, first of all. First rule of pugs, don't tell them to do anything. It was harder than I expected, you know, to keep oh, yeah. him quiet. But once we started therapy, there were so many things that we could do. Yeah. Um, it was actually a really cool, you know, recovery and experience to rehab my own dog. Yeah. And I don't always tell them to be quiet. I mean, most surgeries, you don't want them running around, you know, but I, they, do better if you let them be puppies to some extent not totally crazy but they really need to get back on that leg you know so this is one of few surgeries where i think it's better if you're a little non-compliant you know (laughs) (laughs) thank god where it's like you know if you you know ran across and chased the squirrel and used that leg i'm I'm about that you know yeah Um, so i mean essentially there's nothing to really you know break down right I mean, there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's um, like when you do the surgery, there's um, sometimes you cut through the one of the tendons on the glute muscles. um, And it's a pretty important tendon just to get access to do the surgery. And that could break down if they're just too crazy afterwards. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I, for one, have I think maybe I saw one case of that since 2007 like it's just not that common it's you know what's more common i think is that they don't get enough rehab after surgery and so they don't really extend that leg and that's that's the key with these guys and you guys are way more intelligent about this than i am but you know i was taught if they never get near normal or normal extension they're not really going to walk very well they're always going to have this short stride and so you know that is by far i think the most common complication if you can call that or just consequence of the surgery is Mm -hmm. they, they don't you know pull that leg back far enough during the rehab process so it all scars down and they have this really short choppy gait that's not painful but it's not normal you know and it doesn't let them return to their full ability to use that leg. And if you think about, you know, any uh, compensatory related things to posture and gait, you know, that would all be affected by this short stride. Exactly. You know, I I think there's two big challenges I think of um, after this surgery uh, for me as a rehabber. And one is just getting them to use that leg at all. So again, they may, you know, run like the wind, but they're on three legs. You know, as we mentioned before, you know, they've, they've got three others, whereas a person only has one other. So um, especially with the little dogs, you know, they can put so much weight on those front limbs and get around. I've seen dogs literally handstand, um, which is, you know, crazy and amazing, but not ideal, certainly. <laughs> so getting getting them to use that leg. And then the second thing is the the whole range of motion concept that you're describing, because I found that, you know, if we do get them in early, And, you know, it's that first week and I'm, you know, ranging them and I'm like, wow, you know, they have awesome range of motion. And then by about 
week three, four, they're losing that range of motion mm. because that scar tissue is developing. So, you know, it's kind of a, a catch 22. We want that scar tissue to develop, but as we were discussing earlier in the appropriate way, and we can't let them lose, you know, the functional range of motion. And, you know, we, we talked about this avascular necrosis, which I think they would have a, you know, a better chance of, of recovering that, that range. When you have diagnoses like hip dysplasia, which, you know, leads to osteoarthritis, degenerative joint disease. Oftentimes, they've had years of discomfort that, you know, is kind of building up. And then it gets to this threshold where, you know, it's affecting them functionally because they have so much discomfort with that grinding bone, as you described. So they haven't been using that full range, even going into the surgery. And when they lose that range, that extension or bringing that hip back toward the tail is the one that that typically is lost first. And then I'd say abduction or away from the body out to the side and then external rotation or kind of pivoting that hip out. That's called a capsular pattern. And that's where they will tend to, you know, that pattern of loss of motion. So it's much more of an uphill battle, I think, when they've had kind of a chronic issue and maybe lost that range going into the surgery. Do you guys have thoughts on that? Well, Chris, do you remember you and I, uh, way back in the day, we uh, rehabbed an Afghan hound that had an FHO? Yes. Yeah. And he never really recovered. And I think that that was the scenario. I think he had a long, he had hip dysplasia. I think he was long-term chronic um, and then was referred to physical therapy, but late and 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 at the owner's request. So he was not sent, you know, by the surgeon. And we just never got that leg back to its full function, despite all our efforts, you know, and mm -hmm. he did okay, you know, he wasn't yeah. in any pain anymore, uh, but it just never got back to full function. Yeah. And when they don't use it well, you know, through that right. full range, then they lose that muscle mass right. that is so critical, you know, for, for their maximum improvement, especially, you know, Dr. Davis has referred to the glutes a lot. The gluteal muscles on the back are responsible for extending that leg, you know, they're next to the tail. And when they contract, you know, they, they bring that leg back. And if they're never doing that motion, those yeah. muscles atrophy from disuse. And then you don't have that support, that false joint that, that is needed. Any further comments, Dr. Davis? Yeah, I, I was sort of taught that as well. And I guess there was, um, some, there's some interesting research that has come out, I would say, I don't know, like in the last five years or so that, because so to, to back up a little bit, so to do the surgery, you know, you cut the bone, but then there were, people were sort of trying to figure out a way to prevent the, what was left of the femur from rubbing on the pelvis. Mm -hmm. So surgeons were trying to figure out like muscular flaps you could do to sort of wedge it in between those two bones so that you don't have you don't have the chance of having contact and what they found was that those muscular flaps didn't really help at all you know they just sort of get ground away and they're not that effective but the dogs that had the more severe arthritis actually ended up doing better and the thought was it's because they do have a much thicker joint capsule because it's been so inflamed for so long. And so that scar tissue that's already there, you can kind of, when you close it all up, it kind of helps you as a padding um, mm. between the femur and the pelvis. I don't, 
I don't really know if that's been my experience, but I think I have this bias kind of like what you were saying where the leg has just been so abnormal for so long that any function you can get back is great, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I've never, but they actually force plated these dogs, you know, and had better outcomes with more severely arthritic dogs versus like mild arthritis. So that's kind of interesting. What you're describing with a force plate is that you walk a dog across a plate that measures how much weight, if you will, that they're putting through a limb. So you were saying that the dogs that had more severe arthritis were actually putting more weight on that post-surgical limb than dogs that had less severe arthritis post this surgery. Right. Okay. Um, and they also, there was another study that looked at, this is a really recent one that looked at, they looked at dogs that had, had an FHO like two years, a little bit more than two years prior, and they would walk them on these force plates to see how they were using the leg, basically, just to find out long-term how they're really doing. Because I feel like, I don't know. I see them at two weeks after surgery and then a month and then they're just gone forever, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and you don't really know how they're doing. So they looked at them a couple of years later and found that they use the force plate very normally, you know, almost back to normal on the FHO leg. And these are, I think they were larger dogs in this study. Um, however, they had atrophy, muscle loss in the leg, not a ton, but, you know, different than the other, the normal leg. Um, and they had lost some extension of the leg as well. But functionally, when they walked and trotted, they were normal. So I don't know how much of what we see as far as what we can measure is that important for the, these dogs' quality of life, mm. you know, mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Because there's things like, I don't know about you guys, but I want them to all get back to 100% normal as if nothing had ever happened, right? Like, that's exactly. the goal. Right. None uh, of this ever happened. Right. <laughs> I know, it's like, it was born this way. Um, and you never really get there, right? But I, I think with this surgery, you probably get closer than you think, you know, mm -hmm. if you rehab them early. And the ones that they sit around for a couple months and then go to rehab, those are the ones that I think are the biggest challenge because you're just fighting against what's already scarred down versus helping the body organize itself. And and I always tell my pet parents too that, you know, again, it's quality of life, it's function. Are they able to do the things that they did, you know, have always done, you know, or that you'd like them to do? And you know, like you said, there's not that many objective things that we can measure as rehabbers. And so when we get out our, our special tape measure called the Gulick 2 and, and measure their thigh circumference as a reflection of muscle mass or, or that potential atrophy, you know, they may be, always be a centimeter or two smaller on that surgical leg. But at the end of the day, that doesn't matter because they're using that leg great or they may still have, you know, 10 degrees less hip extension. Well, the only reason they would need that is if they're, you know, standing on their hind legs and, and right. you know, trying to reach up something really high, you know, but for normal, what we call activities of daily living or ADLs, you know, you don't need that last 10 degrees typically. They can get by, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's exciting to hear you say that these studies are showing that long term they are doing quite, quite well. Yeah. And I often wonder, I mean, so the, you know, there's atrophy, but like, shouldn't there be, you know, they're, they're using the leg differently, you know, mm -hmm. they're not firing these muscles 
exactly the same because the mechanics of the leg, if, if you, you've made that leg a centimeter shorter, it's yep. not all going to go back to as if it weren't that way, you know? And so, the, like I said, the things that we measure, we measure them because that's what we have. But then, you know, at the end of the day, if that dog can just run across the dog park and play endlessly and not hold the leg up, you know, I think right. it, it's good. It works it's for the a dog. Win. Right. Yes. Win. What about bilateral FHOs? Have, can we do that? Yeah. Um, I mean, so I mean, I can do it, but I. <laughs> I mean, I can't sure do, can it, do it. But... <laughs> but then I just I ship them off to Chris, and I'm like, all right, can you just <laughs> fix what I just did? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think so. My problem, so I do do bilateral FHOs if the dog really isn't walking on the back leg. So if they really can't walk on either back leg and they're so debilitated, I think it's appropriate because you can just really rehab that dog. You know, it's going to be a, a long slog and I warn the owners, you know, but you can get them to where they need to be. I prefer to stage them even, you know, two to four weeks apart just to give them a good leg, quote unquote, you know, their other mm -hmm. bad leg, a good leg to walk on. I've seen a few cases over the years where I'm like, it doesn't matter if you do them separate or together because this dog doesn't have a good leg, you know? So I do do that. And I've done it um, in one instance because the owner really did not have enough money to do them separately, but they end up spending all that money in rehab, you know? So right. I, I, I prefer to stage them a little bit, space them out, a little bit just so it's not so hard on the dog and you know in my experience if they if they do great on one leg and not the other the dog is still in pain like you haven't really fixed the problem you, the you problem. know i um, had a a client many years ago who called and said that you know her dog had had uh, bilateral fho's you know at the same time and the dog was only walking on its front limbs and so in my mind i thought well it must be in a little dog, it's maybe it's a little poodle or something. It's just walking on the front legs. This was like a 50, 55 pound shepherd polymix. And he had lifted up his rear end and was only walking on his front limbs. And, and ultimately, I, I would like to say it had a great outcome, you know, because they got the dog into th the therapy right away and the dog ended up doing just fine. But wow, I mean, a 50 pound dog just walking on those front limbs and, and holding up that back. Yeah. Uh, was something to see. <laughs> That's so hard for the dog. It, it is, it is. And, and uh, you know, ultimately, again, he ended up doing well, but it was months of therapy, you know, before he, he was, yeah. you know, comfortable. But wow, the ability to compensate or, yeah, the ability to change that or carry your, how much core strength do you need to carry the rest of your hind end, you know? <laughs> yeah, and you think if you had done one and then given him a couple of weeks just to deal with this post-surgical pain and then mm -hmm. do the other, you oh know. God. Well, I was going to say that, you know, I want to touch a little bit about just pointing out the signs that that people should look for in terms of, you know, is your dog having hip pain? You know, sometimes we don't know um, because it's a gradual onset, you know, over the course of their life. And and so it's- Or your it's, cat, Chris, or your or cat. Or your cat, yeah, because yeah. they hide everything. But I'm right. like, that- that example you just gave, Kathy, is pretty blatant. If your dog is walking on its front legs, I'd say there's a problem <laughs> with the hind legs. Yeah, something's going on there. But uh, you know, what are what are some of the other signs that may you know be more subtle that 
that people should look for and seek out veterinary care, you know, get that x-ray, find out what's going on? You know, the, the most common signs that I hear about, it's, I mean, sometimes the limp, that's a pretty no-brainer. They come in for that, you know, mm-hmm. but I learned very early on when I was first out of vet school, before I even started doing surgery, these quote unquote lazy puppies that lay down to eat, don't stand to drink water. They they drink laying down, the ones that go to the dog park and just all the other dogs are running around and they're laying there and they're on their back playing, but they're not running with the other dogs or they don't run for very long with the other dogs. Those are all signs, really subtle signs of I think pretty severe hip pain that the dogs have just sort of learned to compensate because they're that this is all they know, you know, if they have hip dysplasia. And so they don't do normal stuff. So they get called lazy, you know, oh, he doesn't like to, but there's a reason why the puppy's not playing with the other puppies. Like, of course, he should be running around like a maniac, you know. Yeah. Um, and he should be standing to eat, you know, that's not normal for them to lay down to eat. So those are the some of the big ones that I would say pretty consistently people describe to me, that's not like a limp, you know, or holding Mm -hmm. up the leg, that would be a clear indication something was wrong or reluctance to go up the stairs or jump in the car. Um, I've had owners tell me, oh, he's just scared. And it's like, well, he shouldn't even have a thought about it. He should just go up the stairs, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But there was something that happened that made him not want to do it. It probably hurts. You know, and so those are the things that I think are really subtle that owners probably see pretty often. And, you know, once I tell them, they go home and they're like, oh, yeah, that's been, you know, it really helps people to know what to look for because it becomes more obvious. And it, it is just these little subtle things throughout the day. And once they have the surgery, this I'll never forget this one um a client of mine, she was amazed when she came in for her two-week recheck because her dog was scratching his ear with the bad leg and he had never scratched his ear with that leg ever. You know, mm-hmm. like little subtle stuff. That's like something, that. yeah. <laughs> well, and if you only have one dog, for example, you you know, you, you live with this every day yeah, and just, yeah, right. you just sign off as normal, right? This this is just my dog. You don't have anything to compare it to necessarily. So it's our job as rehabbers, veterinarians, to educate pet owners as to what they should expect, what is normal. Because I think a lot of times it is, you know, not consciously are they in denial, but but really they unconsciously are in denial that their dog has an issue. Yeah, you just don't know. I mean, this is all I do all day long since right. I was 14 years old. Like, <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I really don't know anything else. Um, but, you know, but it's, it's just different. But once you start to see these little things, most people can pick up on it. Like, you know, you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know. And and Kathy, you, you brought up and, and Dr. Davis, you did too about cats. Do cats do well with the FHO surgery? Um, I, I do think that they do. I think they actually do better than dogs. But And there was, you know, all these gait analysis study. There was one study looking at cats and how they do with FHOs and trying to figure out where they put their weight afterwards because the, the assumption is that they just push it to the other back leg, you know, when they're walking. But cats really distribute they, their weight differently before and after surgery. They're much more, it's different for every cat. And they tend to do, I think, much better to basically have almost no clinical lameness 
But I also think it's hard, very hard to see if a cat is limping just because of how they walk, you know, Um, they're so low to the ground and they're cats. So they just always hide their, you know, any kind of Mm -hmm. pain. But they typically, if you actually, you know, put them on the force plate, they typically return to almost normal plating afterwards, after surgery, which sort of fits with what you see clinically. So I don't hesitate to do an FHO on a cat. There are total hip replacements that can be done on cats. It's now way more common than it was even 10 years ago. There's implants that are small enough. And some people opt for that. And I'm sure they do excellent, you know, the the reports I've seen. But an FHO is also, I think, you know, in a well, probably it's not an equivalent alternative, but it's it's pretty darn close, you know. Cats are amazing. We always say that. Are there any speaking of which, are there any other species that FHOs have been done on? There was one um paper on wild cats, which that sounds so cool. Um <laughs> I was like, I wish I was there. I want to rehab that right now. <laughs> I just want to just pet them when they're under anesthesia. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you know, yeah. I don't know. I was just curious. And what about age? Is there an age? You know, I know you said that you prefer them to be young and you explained why, but is there an age limit or are there other medical conditions that would limit uh, your going forth? with this type of surgery? Yeah, so I think a big um, a big thing to rule out or just to make sure before you sort of plow ahead and do any hip surgery, especially on large breed dogs, even small breed dogs, just to make sure the rest of the leg is normal. So, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of larger dogs and even smaller dogs will have knee disease. So they'll have like a torn ACL, you know, and that's why they're limping and the hips are bad, but the hips have been bad since they were six months old. And now they're limping at seven or eight. It might not be the hip, you know, certainly could be the knee, it could be the ankle. And so, you know, in smaller dogs, they have a tendency to have their kneecaps pop out. It's just the way they're sort of built. And so that again is another, um, you know, most people that do hip surgery, you just check out the whole leg first, you know, and just make sure that there's nothing downstream from the hip that could be causing the signs that you're seeing. Um, I have had a few cases where it wasn't anything below the hip, but the nerves weren't normal. And so you have to make sure they don't have any back issues or they're getting like sciatic pain, like shooting pain to the leg unrelated to the hip. Mm. Because you could certainly have both issues and you have to sort of figure out which one's bothering the dog. And like I said, if you do have concurrent issues, sometimes it's not like the hips aren't great, but that's not the issue, you know. And that'd be a bummer to go through the surgery for the hip Mm -hmm. and then they wouldn't be any better because it was really emanating from their back and the nerves. Yeah. And and then back to age, is there any, you know, if they're healthy, would you do an FHO at a on an older dog? Oh yeah, I wouldn't hesitate, especially, you know, you see some of these older dogs, maybe they're like a little bit weak, you know, over the years and they fall off the couch and pop their hip out and they might be a a candidate for popping the hip back in. And if the hip stays back in, great, you don't have to do surgery, but if it keeps popping out, that's a good candidate for an FHO. And if they have some other health issues, but nothing too major, Um, I wouldn't hesitate because, again, it provides pain control, you know, and in older dogs where their hips are just so miserably painful, it can, it can provide them some relief. The problem is, you know, especially in um, some of the large breed older dogs, in particular, I think about huskies, 
um, they'll often have two, you know, horrific hips. And it's like, which one do you fix? You know, and, you know, you could certainly fix both, but that's a lot of surgery for an older dog. And so usually before we sort of go down that path, I encourage owners to do medical management of hip dysplasia. So the big one is almost always weight loss. You know, if you can get even four or five pounds off of a, you know, a large breed dog, sometimes that's enough to where they just feel amazing and you don't have to do surgery for hip dysplasia. And so, and there's no harm in waiting to do an FHO because it's not a procedure that needs to be done right away unless the hip is popped out. So you can take a few months, get them to lose the weight. And then if they're not better, do the surgery. And, but I would say for at least half of the older dogs that I see that come in, you know, and they often have multiple joint issues, the weight loss alone is all you need. Some of them end up coming off of all those anti-inflammatory pills, you know, because they just feel so much better. You actually rehabbed the dog for me, Chris, that um, had, had had multiple joints. And I told the owner, I'm like, we could do surgery on all four legs. <laughs> or <laughs> or mm-hmm. why don't you just go to rehab for a few months? The dog was fine. Yeah. It was fine. Like you fixed that dog, you know. Wow. But, but to your <laughs> so point. To. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but to your point, you know, I think that that pet owners underestimate how powerful weight loss is. And the other thing, you know, that I was hearing from you, Dr. Davis, is that I always point out to pet owners, a good surgeon doesn't just jump to surgery. If there are other conservative measures that can be taken to try to, you know, quote unquote, fix the the problem. I mean, surgery in and of itself, any type of surgery isn't without risk. I mean, you have risk of anesthesia, you know, there's risk of infection and, you know, you want to make sure a good surgeon will explore all those other avenues before, you know, they, they put your dog or pet under the knife. So I appreciate that. We yeah. uh, did a show also, um, people should go back and listen to the show that we did on obesity so that they can really get a sense for how important it is to keep our dogs in good weight. So if you haven't listened to that show, you should go and listen to the show that we did on um, obesity. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because weight loss through all the years of research and go back through all the papers has been the only thing that will reliably reduce the severity of arthritis in dogs with hip dysplasia. And it's a really old study and it was an excellent study and they, um, it was the only thing and it has been the only thing that will reduce the amount of arthritis in dogs with hip dysplasia. That's it. Important. If you just keep them thin, you know, through their whole Mm -hmm. life, that's huge. Like you've done more than you ever need to do. Well, any other questions, Kathy, that you have for the fine doctor? No, no, this is great. This is really great. And I... I have to say, I mean, this makes me a total nerd, I know, but I love rehabbing FHOs. (laughs) I really love it because it's just so many things that we can do for these dogs. I I would say that for the most part, a lot of these dogs do very, very well. Um, So it's an exciting topic for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things from a rehab perspective. I mean, this is just a a quintessential, you know, issue post-operatively. I mean, we talk about, you know, torn cruciate ligaments. That's a big surgery that we do post-op rehab for, but I think FHOs is is right up there. And, you know, again, restoring that range of motion, 
um, restoring their gait to a normal pattern, strengthening those muscles to support the hip. And, you know, like you said, Dr. Davis, getting them back out there and running around in that dog park, you know, that's, that's what we're all aiming for. So nothing feels better than having an owner come back and saying, Hey, my dog is doing stuff that they haven't done in, in a long time. Or my dog is reconnecting with something that brings them joy, playing with the dogs, playing with you, you know, that's, you know, that's nothing feels better than that. Yep. And Kathy, you always talk about the emotional lives of, of pets and, you know, getting these, these guys out of pain. I mean, that really makes deal. them feel much better emotionally. Big deal. So. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Pain is a, is a real drag. Let me tell it's you, a real bummer. Especially, yeah, especially chronic pain, right? It's like, ugh. well, this has been great. And we always like to finish our show, Dr. Davis, with, you know, any closing thoughts or pearls of information that you want to leave our listeners with? Weight loss, weight loss. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, that's a good one. Um, definitely weight loss. And, you know, if you end up doing the surgery, I always tell people, you know, the surgery itself um, is a lot cheaper than getting a hip replacement. So whatever money you save there, just spend it on rehab and you will get what you want out of the surgery. And that's, I think, you know, in my opinion, the two go hand in hand. I don't know why we don't have them in veterinary medicine connected, you know, as part of the treatment because they should be. They're really not separate, I don't think. I'm glad you mentioned the cost because I was going to uh, ask you that earlier that the FHO surgery is significantly less expensive than right. hip replacement. And uh, so, you know, that even though, like you said, maybe pet parents desire to get a hip replacement, but there's nobody doing them in their area or they just can't afford it, that this definitely is, is an option. So yeah, and I think it's a very low risk um, surgery compared to a hip replacement. If everything goes awry with an FHO, there's really no revision surgery to be done unless it wasn't done correctly the first time, you know, versus mm -hmm. a hip replacement. If the hip pops out, then you got to get in there and do something, you know. And so um, I have had owners who have just enough money for one surgery, you know, just enough. Yeah. And I think this is the surgery that I would pick for them because right. no matter what, we're going to be within the budget and they're going to still do a pretty wonderful thing for their pet. So, well, and I remember working on the human side and, you know, it's, it's very, what do I want to say? There are a lot of uh, precautions uh, post-op in terms of they can't bring their leg across midline. They can't, you know, right. flex more than X degrees and so forth. And I would think, you know, it's similar in, in dogs and based on the personality, the temperament of the dog um, and what the owner is capable of, I, I would think that that would be part of the selection process too, because if you have a nutty dog yeah. that is getting a total hip replacement, that success, you know, maybe challenging because of those restrictions no we, we put them in military dogs and police dogs yeah my residency i'll never forget um this one dog it literally just circled in the car the whole time and it was really aggressive and we you know it was a very hard dog to deal with in the hospital and that dog did just fine so the hip replacement oh, pretty they're, it's pretty robust but but if there's a complication you got to get back into surgery, you know? And so that's, it's, it's definitely riskier, I think, you know, and if you can't afford the risk, the FHO makes complete sense to me. And, and one other thing I wanted to say is that I just want to paint a clear picture. And this is true for, for really any surgery. 
you know, I think it's it's traumatizing for the owners. Um, if we don't manage their expectations when they see their dog, when they pick up their dog after surgery, I mean, there is swelling, there is bruising, there's going to be an incision and sutures and so forth. But again, that's, you know, where your immediate post-op care, you know, your your rest, your your cold packs and getting into rehab, we can really help to reduce that immediate post-op inflammation and make sure that it doesn't become a chronic issue. Um, but, you know, that's kind of par for the course, I think, you know, with any surgery, whether it's a, an animal or a person, right? There's that post-op inflammation that needs to be controlled. So yeah, that's really the most alarming part is seeing the leg right after surgery. Well, Dr. Davis, can you, um, would you let the audience know where can they find you? Where can they find uh, you if they want to learn more about FHOs and hips? I'm at uh, VCA South Shore in South Weymouth. Um, so if you Google that, that's, I should park right up. So yep. we'll put that in our show notes. So, so Dr. Davis, I cannot thank you enough for spending the time with us today. You are an expert and more than that, you are a dynamite person that I'm happy to call my friend as well. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Davis. We learned a lot today. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. For more information about Kathy's books and living with blind dogs, please visit EnableYourPet.com. Thank you, and please tune in next time.